Dr. Michelle Schrader was raised in New Jersey, got her bachelor's degree from Rutgers University and her DVM from Ohio State in 1985. In 1986, she and her husband moved to Bellingham, Washington, and purchased a clinic there where they practice to this day. She was certified by the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society in acupuncture in 1997 and is a charter member of the American Academy of Veterinary Acupuncture, the U.S. affiliate for IVAS. She's also completed certifications in veterinary Chinese herbal medicine and Twina. In 2006, she was one of the first veterinarians to become a fellow of the American Academy of Veterinary Acupuncture which is the AAVA's advanced certification. Dr. Schrader also has a master's of education in college and continuing education from Western Washington University. In addition to her clinical practice, she's chair of the IVIS International Education Committee, serves on the IVIS Board of Directors, and is a member of the AAVA's advanced certification committee, and is involved in teaching the neuroacupuncture course through CIVT. She's also involved in IVIS's online education program. She's lectured on acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine, both nationally and internationally. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michelle Schrader. Dr. Schrader, how are you? Thanks for joining me. Hello. Yes. uh, My pleasure. So where'd you grow up? New Jersey. Central Jersey. Ah, a rural area area or city or what? Oh, no. I call it the New York City bedroom community. (laughs) Suburbs. Everyone gotcha. commutes to New York City. <laughs> ah, okay. So at what point did you realize that you want to be a veterinarian? Very, very, very early. Um, always in my memory, mom said when I was like five or six, I was, when we were playing with dolls with friends, I was always Dr. Schrader and I was a vet, not an MD. So <laughs> I don't remember that quite, but that's what she tells me. <laughs> wow. So where did you, where did you go for undergrad? Uh, Rutgers, Cook College. What did, what did you study there? Uh, animal science pre-vet major. You had your animal science, animal science people, and the animal science pre-vet majors. <laughs> and then what, I know you went to Ohio State, but what other schools were you interested in? Well, Ohio was my first choice. Um, I'd had some employers that said they really liked the Ohio grads. Um, I'd experienced it a little bit. Um, I had initially gotten accepted into Pennsylvania. Um, at the time, there was a budget crunch, and so half the New Jersey contracts to Pennsylvania were in-state tuition, and the other half were out-of-state tuition to maintain the numbers, and I got accepted in the out-of-state one, and I was on the waiting list for Ohio, and I told the uh, secretary there that I really wanted to get into Ohio. I mean, it was going to be the difference of like $9,000 a year this back in 81. <laughs> uh, current grads would kill for that. Um, $9,000 a year and not starve myself to death compared to $15,000 a year and starve myself to death. And so she called me one evening. My roommate said, oh, somebody's on the phone for you. And I picked it up and she said, you're in. And then started telling me about how the person ahead of me had decided to go to Pennsylvania. And then all of a sudden I realized who I was talking to. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. So I was happy. Um, yeah. It, it just, Ohio, is, I thought, was a better school than Penn. What other what other states did uh, New Jersey have contracts with at that time? Uh, Cornell, which I didn't get an interview with because my GREs were 50 points under their minimum. 
even though my veterinary aptitude tests that the Midwest schools wanted was in a 98 percentile, but you know, they'll take the test they take. Um, you had Ford, Ohio, I think there's 12 at Cornell and I think there was 19 at Pennsylvania at the time. And then there were two at, I think Tuskegee. I didn't apply there. Yeah. And I tried for Purdue also who took out of state students. So there were three other New Jersey people in your class with you. Yes. Yeah. And actually one think- practices in this County now with me too. <laughs> Incredibly oh, enough, small world. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. So did you feel like your undergrad prepared you for Ohio state? Yes. I mean, you were, you were uh, three years ahead of me, so we could, we could certainly sidetrack and reminisce about that, but did you feel like you got a good education? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's very prepared um, compared to some schools that I've had new grads from now. I think we were very well prepared in comparison. Yeah. So um, what, was, what was your focus in school? What did you think you were going to do when you got out? Well, when I started vet school, I thought, I'd, like a lot of new grads that I've interviewed, I wanted to do wildlife. Um, that sort of went by the wayside. I met my husband when I was a freshman. He was a senior at uh, one of the OTS parties, and um, we got married. And after graduation, we the long-term plan was to start a small practice together, and we just took a deep – we wanted to – go to the Pacific Northwest. It was actually our first conversation with each other that we both wanted to go to Pacific Northwest. He's from Appalachia in Virginia, um, before Virginia had a vet school. And um, we went to New Jersey for a couple years just for employment and to save money uh, because there's a lot of jobs there. And you can get two different jobs, two different clinics without having to work together but still live in the same apartment because of the density of the population in New Jersey. Uh, we didn't want to work in the same clinic because we'd never be able to take the time off together uh, because we would gut the place of vets. And also we didn't want, you know, time with uh, looking at salaries and everything, uh, being looked at one entity with our employer. So we worked at separate clinics. Ah, okay. So, so he graduated, you guys were married and you did the long distance thing. Did he yeah. go to New Jersey right away then? He tried a year in Ohio, but it was during the recession and um, he was paid pittance at the time. And he noticed there was a lot of jobs in Jersey. So he went there. And uh, so the next two and a half years, we had a commuting marriage. Basically, whenever there was a three-day weekend, I jumped on the old People's Express plane. I was one of those early budget things. It was like $30 one way and flew from Ohio to New Jersey. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. So were you, were you guys able to, uh, live in the same town then after you graduated, you got, you got yeah. a job close by? Yeah. Yeah. I got yeah. a job close. Actually I started in one place and then I switched to another place in Jersey. Actually the place I was second was a clinic that shared emergencies with, uh, the practice my husband was at. So one week he'd be on, next week I might be on. And um, he was more into emergencies than I was. And my clinic didn't care if his clients called in for emergency the week I was covering, if he just went and saw it at his clinic. They're like, no, no, we don't care. So I didn't have to see as many emergencies. (laughs) Oh, nice. Yeah. So do you feel like, do you feel like school prepared you for practice? Yes. Yeah, it did. Yeah. How big was the practice that you joined then? Um, It was about 
three or four vets. The second one, the first one I was at was two partners and I was the new third person they were adding. Ah, okay. So do you feel like you got mentored pretty well? My first job, no. <laughs> ah. Luckily, there was a phone in the pharmacy that I could call up my husband, the vet, and ask questions. I mean, I had to see my first day on as a new grad. I was there in the morning seeing appointments, and in the evening, it was just one person, and they had me seeing evening appointments by myself, and I was booked every eight minutes in that practice. Wow. Yeah, you learned how to diagnose renal failure in a cat with a, and it was a very blue collar neighborhood. I could do it really fast and really budget wise. <laughs> I learned that fast, but yeah, the first time I had a diarrhea case, I mean, I was like on the phone going, Ed, there's like all these meds on the shelf, and um, I know these are diarrhea meds, but in this instance, which one's the best? Yeah, because that's what, something you learn with experience. <laughs> yeah. You have yeah. all this knowledge, but you don't know quite how to apply it well. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so, so I, I left there after seven months. <laughs> oh man! So, it, so how long did it take you guys? You're, you're, you know, you went there with a plan that you were going to eventually go and start your own practice. So, how long were you in in New Jersey then? Uh, it was about a year and a half there. If I graduated, um, we were going to be there a year longer. We'd been out west looking around on in various cities where we might want to buy a practice or set up from scratch and. Uh, the practice my husband was working at sold to somebody and about the same time I switched to the other new job. It was on the same day and my job got much better and his went south because the new guy was not good. Actually, he ran that practice into the ground. It doesn't exist anymore. And um, so we accelerated our plan and found a practice in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association that was in Bellingham. And I sent my mother and sister who lived in Oregon up to look at it. And they'd looked at other practices before and called up and looked at it the day before and said, no, you don't want this. Can we just cancel? Well, they got to this one and they called up the night before and said, oh my God, Ed's going to love this practice. It's out in the county. You can see the mountain and the trees. He's going to love this. So we put an option on it to hold it for a month so we could get out to see it and got there and drove down. It's about nine miles off the interstate and coming from New Jersey, that's like forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we were driving down the road and driving down the road, driving down the road. It was a sunny day and we were like, oh my God, there's a small animal practice out here. I mean, it's like, you know, five, 10 acre parcels out there. And we get just behind, beyond this foothill and there's Mount Baker in the background and there's the clinic. And my husband just said, as we're pulling the parking lot, it's got to be a dive inside for us not to buy this. And it was affordable because it was only a three and a half year old practice. So it was just breaking even so we could actually afford to buy it. Wow. And we didn't have any employees for like the first two years. <laughs> wow. So, uh, did you have to go through bank financing? Did the owner finance? How did that work? Uh, we had to, in the end, do an SBA loan. He had an SBA loan in the past. We went to various banks. We had this whole package. We flew out with everything, our finances in there, prepared. And banks would first say, oh, yeah, 
awesome. We'd love to have this. And then what I learned fast is the first guy you talk to, the one loan officer, is not the guy who has any say at all. It goes up through committee. And so then later on, you get this thing from like, you know, People's Bank was one. We got this letter saying, well, you have no prior experience owning a business, so we're going to turn you down. And it's just like, if I owned a prior practice or business, I wouldn't need the financing because I'd have money then. But, um, and somebody also told me if I was an MD, my degree would have some monetary value, but DVMs don't. So it was an inequality there. But so we got an SBA loan for the bank, which had um, the guy who sold us practice, uh, the loan. And this is, of course, in uh, uh, 86 that we bought the practice, December of 86. Ah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's an SBA loan at two and three quarters percent over the prime rate. Uh, it was a 10-year loan. I think in about six years, we accelerated the payments because towards the end, the interest rate was like 12 and a half percent. Yeah. That was back when certificates of deposit actually paid a lot. Oh, man. <laughs> and also the loans were killers. <laughs> yeah. So y- you just worked the two of you for a while. Yep. Yep. So, so at what point were you able to hire staff? Uh, about two and a half years. And then we hired the first staff member, which was like, thank God. Um, it's very interesting. People think it's very interesting to work with your spouse, but it's very, you can't get away from each other. <laughs> yeah. And oh, yeah. you can't have silent moments <laughs> or walk out. You just kind of work it through. You let the little things go by. <laughs> but oh, it was man. just yeah. not nice. I mean, having two vets work with each other, it's like backseat driving. For anyone, it's like you sit there and you're driving somebody where and somebody says, no, turn here. And the other person, no, go this way or that way. You know, it's the same thing. I do not want to assist him in surgery and he doesn't want me assisting him in surgery. <laughs> it's just better that way for the marriage. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So at what point did you get an interest in uh, integrated medicine? I sort of developed with time um, in Ohio. um, uh, Was it Roman Scarta? Uh, yeah, he was still there. Yeah, he w- he would give like a two hour lecture during the anesthesia module about acupuncture. I remembered that, and I'd been sending dachshunds with discs up to Canada, where there's somebody who do, could do acupuncture. And one year, and I'd heard about the Ivis course, and one year I inquired, and that year it was in Atlanta, and I figured out, well, you know, I don't want to fly four times across the country to Atlanta in the winter. So yeah. I kind of nixed that. And that was when it was doing every two years, the course. And the next two years, two years later, I went and checked into it and it was in Albuquerque. And I thought, uh-huh. yes, <laughs> no brainer. So I figure out how much it's going to cost and the time. And I go up to my husband and I remember getting out of the car, coming back from work. And I said, I'm going to take this course in Albuquerque. I'll be gone four times, you know, about five days each time. And he was like, how much is going to cost? And I was like, well, I think it's going to be like uh, six to $8,000 in the end between the hotel and the plane fare and the tuition. He just went, if you insist. So <laughs> <laughs> I went on and took the course. But the interesting thing is by that point, we were uh, just had gotten ourselves computerized. So 
a year after I finished the course, I went and did coding and did my exam alternative, which is, you know, the exams that I did that was for the acupuncture and then my acupuncture code. And it spit out the gross for that. And I had meet the six to $8,000. I can't remember which <laughs> in one year and went, See? <laughs> I got it. Oh, nice. Um, so you, you put it into practice right away when you were taking the course then? Yeah. Yeah. The, they encourage you the first session to start needling. And remember, I mean, I went in there thinking I'm going to hit help for pain and back and things. And then they were talking about treating sinusitis. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I'd had this case where the, this German shepherd was having a discharge from its nostril and we'd cultured it over the past five months did sensitivities put it on antibiotics it would get better then it relapsed after caught him off antibiotics tried a different one it get better relapse so when i heard about the sinusitis i like oh, you know we're at a dead end with this case i went up to the owner and i said you know i'm just learning this i don't know all the points here i kind of like to see if it will work i won't charge you in the beginning until it works are you game for it? And he's like, yeah, I mean, I was, I'm a Vietnam vet. I'd seen some acupuncture in Vietnam. And I was like, great. So I did it and the dog got better. It went away. And my husband came up to me and said, do you think it's coincidence it got better? And I said, it had five freaking months for co coincidence to happen. And to this day, he uh, he'll be seeing a case and he goes, I, I've, I've I've gone as far as I can with this case. I've mentioned acupuncture. They're interested. Um, why don't you go in there and see that case? And I'll go on to the next case. And I'm like, all right, now I'm double booked. <laughs> so he promotes it to me and he'll come up to me and say, oh, I have this cancer case. What herbals um, they're interested? Would you recommend me put it on? And I'll put them on herbals and that. So he's, he's very much into it now. So when did you start studying herbs then after acupuncture? Uh, I've pretty much got into it um, fast because um, the person I did my 40 hours internship, um, Dr. Marlene Smith up in Canada, she had taken the IVIS herbal course um, way back then. It was a meeting course face to face. And she had taken the first time through and she was doing herbals and she said, you really need to take it. And quickly, because it'll make your traditional Chinese medicine um, better, because you have to learn it for that. And she was right. It just really reiterates and goes through it all over again. And the IVIS was restarting their second time through a meet-to-meet -meet course. And it was on in March and November for three years in a row, six modules. It was Jake Fracken, who was in the human acupuncturist, Robert Silver, and Dr. Shea teaching it. And it was back in transparency days. So it's ah. very interesting. You know, Dr. Shea would be there <laughs> on the trans, you know, talking and he'd say something like Xiao and everyone would go like, write it down. Cause we couldn't figure out if he was saying X I A O C H I A O. <laughs> you know, it, it's very hard with the Chinese pronunciation to know what you're spelling. And it wasn't a PowerPoint time. <laughs> so, uh, oh, yeah. and, and his accent was heavier back then too. So, and right near you, so Steve Marsden taught. <laughs> oh, geez. So how far, how far after your acupuncture course did you do the herbs then? Um, I, let's say I finished in 97, the acupuncture course. And I think by 98, 99, I was in that course for the next three years. I think by about 2001, oh, nice. I was done with the course. Do you think, do you think that was good spacing to do it like that for, for three? I mean, as, as far as the herb course, doing it over a three year period? 
yeah, yeah, it, it that worked out fine for me. Um, I kind of liked that. It was as intense. It could go along with it. Um, it could have gone faster. I mean, it'd been probably nice to have it in two years, but that's how the course was set up. Um, now I know a lot of them do it in a year. Um, the IVIS CIV tor- course um, can take a couple years to go through, and I think that's probably a good speed. It is a lot of information to learn. It sure is, yeah. So at what point did you study Twina then? Um, I took the first one that Dr. Shea and the Chi Institute did, which I think was in like 2006 or something like that. And right. um, very interesting. Um very sold on it. I went, flew across the country. It was the first time I was having some sciatica. So it was very uncomfortable flying from Washington to Florida. At that time, I think it was a seven-hour flight. And we were, you know, they have you learn by doing it to each other to give feedback. And when I teach it, I do the same to clients. I don't show them on their animal. I show it on them so they can better get that neural feedback and feel for what I'm doing. And my partner was doing the pinching on the back. I'm laying on my stomach and a human now practitioner was coming around and she was doing the uh, pinching pickup move. And he's like, you're not doing that hard enough. And he went and pinched me, picked up my skin and my muscle and lifted my pelvis like three inches off the table and then dropped me. And I felt my back pop and I had absolutely no pain flying back. I was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Um, so obviously you're able to sell your husband on all these extra courses. Yes. Yeah. After proving, proving with the acupuncture that it, that it could sell. Did, um, do most of your, your acupuncture patients, do they come from in-house or do you have people that travel to see you? Uh, all over. Um, I have people come up from, come down from Canada. I've had them come up from Snohomish County. I have one that's, I've had a, twice somebody come up from Portland to see me um, from the San Juan Islands. Uh, of course, my own client base, mentioning it to them. Uh, you know, in the beginning, when I got into it, I thought the more liberal clients would be into it. You know, have a, a university in town that those people would, and there was the ex-hippie crowd in this part of the county, and I thought they would be the ones seeing me. And I was wrong. I'd have you know the old eighty-five-year-old, the John Deere cap guy, come in with his poodle who was not a client, saying his back's hurting. Can you do acupuncture on him? And, uh, you know, and I would mention to clients as an option at times and, you know, no one ever went, oh, what's the proof type thing. You would occasionally get the blank stare when you would explain it to somebody and they wouldn't ask a question. I just go in the chart, mentioned acupuncture and I just went on to the rest of the Western medicine options. (laughs) No one ever, it's more the colleagues that give you the, where's the proof thing, (laughs) not the public. Sure. Sure. So as you finished up Twina, then you did the FAAVA exam. Yep. Yep. Uh, I and Willie McCormick were the first ones to take it. <laughs> ah, so, so where was the exam held? It was in Chicago. Um, they were going to, it was actually when uh, Jordan Koshin was giving his first time a five element lecture. So he was in another room and uh, we were in room next door taking the exam across from each other. 
And it was kind of interesting that that night and that was a hotel near the Chicago airport. And that night I was on the second floor and I was right above the ballroom. And there was one of those uh, 16 year old um, the Spanish, it's the Quint, I can't remember what it's called. It's celebration. Oh, yeah, there was that below me till 2 a.m. going full blast. And it was just like, oh my God. <laughs> I had uh, a Starbucks Frappuccino bottle in front of me that I was chugging that whole morning during the exam. <laughs> oh, so they, they had a, re- <clears throat> a reading list for you probably and mm-hmm. to yeah. study. I mean, how long, how long did you study? I studied for four, at, four months prior to it. Um, the one mistake I made, and I've told everyone since who's taken the exam is, I went and did the neurophysiology stuff right at the beginning, and then I never looked at it again. And then I got really intense about the five elements because I didn't feel strong in the five elements, especially in using it for treating. Um, I was using more eight principles, Zhang Fu, and that type of stuff. And when I took the exam, I think I blew every neurophysiology question now that I teach and write lectures on it. Now I know that stuff cold, but back then I just kind of blew most of those questions and the five element was easy as pie for me, probably because I kept it simple and the Zhang Fu eight principles and that stuff, you know, I sometimes got myself in trouble, my old adage. And I tell people, you know, students even that work for me who are undergrad students, like, Go with your first instinct. Don't overthink it because you'll change it to the wrong answer. And, you know, that's what I would do occasionally with the type of theory that I work with. I mean, I got to the airport and went, slapped my head and it's like, oh, you know, it was that. Why did I change that, you know, type of reaction later on. Uh, so did, did uh, John and PT administer the test or who No, who Gary Levy yeah. gave it at the time. But, uh, ah. but uh, the Limehouses said, uh, written most of the exam. It was their exam at that top point. Sure. So at what point did you just, I mean, you got a master's in education. What, what prompted that? What was your <laughs> My thinking? husband, he always wanted right. to teach and he knew how, when we went to school, not just because you were a professor in a university or a clinician didn't mean you knew how to teach. Um, some of them were very research orientated. Um, some are very practical teaching, uh, you know, clinician types. So he wanted to teach a little bit. He was thinking like doing evening course at the community college and like physiology and anatomy. So he convinced me to take it with him. It's one of these courses where it was four hours, one evening a week um, because it was made for people who were working. And he said, you know, you're in this new field that's going to need instructors. You need to learn how to teach properly. And this way we can share textbooks and like, okay, fine. You know, I was grumbling and thinking, oh my God, four hours, one evening listening to educational theory, how am I going to live through this? But it was fun because they taught us about student-centered learning where the student is in charge of their learning versus where we got taught way back when in sciences, which is teacher-centered, where the teacher's the authority, you gives you all the information and you passively as a student absorb it. With students and learning what, what uh, one of my professors did, about half my classes in this uh, degree was he gave out the syllabus in the beginning of the course and the various topics for each week. And we broke into groups, formed groups, and each group picked a week and came up with a lesson plan and taught the rest of the class that subject. And wow. he would just interject there. And, you know, we were doing 
we were doing acting things. Um, we did one time a thing where we were doing the uh, Christmas past and present and future to compare the three educational teaching theories <laughs> and we had a blast with it and clients would even comment they were asking about it and it's like oh we could tell you're just really enjoying it what we didn't enjoy as much was when it became the classes that were 100% online learning because you didn't have that interaction with people I, I miss that though I do a lot of online teaching now <laughs> yeah yeah and who knows where it's going to go and like my husband says you know when we graduated from that, it was about 2009. Again, the economy was down and he never used his degree. And he, he still goes like, well, at least you're using the degree because it led to what I all do now. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you start teaching for IVIS? Well, first they approached me when I was nearly near the end of the degree to become the U.S. education chair. Um, for the uh, course that they teach. And then about eight months later, the international chair decided she was too busy and they asked me to do that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, the U.S. chair answers to the international chair, so I'm going to be answering to myself. That's weird. Okay. Um, and so that was, took board approval. And then they told me, okay, you've been approved by the board to be the international education chair. Oh, by the way, it's a board position. I went, oh, Okay. And the next time there was a board meeting at the next Congress, it was going to be in Denmark. And I was like, oh, uh, dear, um, you know, next September, I'm going to have to go to Denmark uh, for two weeks. So I'll be gone from work. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I've seen Europe and Australia and places outside the U.S. via IVIS, um, but by all the Congresses they've gone to. Um, I started teaching for the IVIS course a couple of years ago, um, just because we had a set lecturers. And so basically when people decide they're burned out with it and go off doing other things, then we can get new instructors. And so that came about a couple of years ago. So now I do teach for it. And I've done, I've been the teaching assistant coordinator for it and teaching assistant way before that for the IVIS course. So what point did you guys get an associate for the practice? Uh, about seven years ago. All right. So you would have been, were you already doing things for IVIS at that point? Yes. Yeah. I so would. he was, he was holding down the practice while you were doing this traveling and. Yeah. My husband and the associate. Yep. Okay. Okay. And is that your setup now? You have one associate? Yeah, we did add another associate in between um, after about, it was a new grad after about oh, eight months a year. Uh, the Actually, the fiance, she got married, uh, needed to find a job further south because there wasn't as much in Bellingham. So that pulled her south and has been gone and we haven't replaced her since. Um, we're sort of casually looking for the right person to add a fourth associate. Um, we want to find the right person that's a fit for the long term who just doesn't want to be mentored for a year and then leave. And um, also potentially so, you know, maybe our associate has somebody to work with after my husband and I get tired and want to go part-time. <laughs> my dream right now is that we're hitting 60s. <laughs> To go part time and not work full time. <laughs> sure. So, um, is it is it in the plan? I mean, does your associate now do any integrated medicine, or would the yeah she's gone to the IVA course some... about four or five years ago? 
actually four years ah, ago. Okay. Uh-huh. So, so is she doing the herbs as well or? No, she hasn't. Um, she hasn't written her case report yet, so she's not certified. <laughs> All right. But she's, she's done the training at least. She's done the training. Yeah. She hasn't, she doesn't have the time to do the herbals. Um, not yet, but she asks so, me when, what the case is and I'll tell her what herbals. I'll ask her what is her tra- traditional Chinese medicine diagnosis. I'll ask her some questions and then I'll tell her what herbs to do. So she's got yeah, me to tell her what herbs to prescribe. Well, that's kind of nice that you guys can bounce ideas off each other. Oh, that's how we run our practice, even with the conventional medicine, because it's integrative. We don't have, you know, there's certain cases that are each of the cases, but we try to be collaborative. And we like when I had people interviewing to work for us, new grads, they were like, oh, what percentage of bonus and production do you all pay? And it's like, I will never pay by production because that makes people want to hang on to cases and not take the charity cases. Because my husband does a lot of um, charity cases. He'll do surgeries for free for the Humane Society or the orthopedics, and we'll have the animal for six, eight weeks at the clinic doing Uh, underwater treadmill and laser therapy on the animal until we pull the pin and make sure it's all good and healed before we'll send it off back to the Humane Society. Most of the time we find a client to to adopt it. Um, We've, my husband will give breaks sometimes to clients and like cap the bill and things like that. And, you know, if you pay by production, they're not going to want those cases and we'll share and consult. If um, Lindsay is busy in the back working up a case, I'll quickly go see one of her clients if they, uh, need or if they're fine with it, uh, or vice versa, I'll work up her case while she's seeing the next client if I'm not busy. So, but that's the way we like to work, and we're not who we'll never pay by production. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, do you guys do, do you and your associate share acupuncture cases then? Yeah, she does her, she has her own cases when I'm away off teaching or at one of the conferences, then my cases go to her. That, and that's no issue for the clients if they no, don't mind sharing. No. No, and there's cases that want her specifically because she promote, you know, she, she was seeing them in a, for conventional medicine said, here's a treatment option I think we should pursue. And they did. And so she follows through. So she's got her own cases too now. Yeah. So um, how many technical staff do you have at the clinic? We have one licensed tech at the moment, one who's going into technical school online, uh, one person who just works Saturday who's in technical school face-to-face. He's only there one day a week and he's got two years to go. So we'll eventually have three again. Um, Payroll, if I include my associate vet, I think I have about 14 on the payroll. Ah, Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of part-time college students there. (laughs) Right. So who are, and you have a treadmill you say? Yeah, I have an underwater treadmill. We have two lasers. My husband also does stem cell therapy with platelet-rich plasma. Um, he'd rather do that for cruciate surgery now than his extracapsular surgery that he used to do because the recovery is so much faster. Um, the client's compliance is much easier. They don't have that, you know, your surgery gets wrecked because the animal is done to something too soon um they and the percentage of recovery is just it was faster and just as good i mean not every case is 100 percent, but i mean we i mean we did one case it came down from canada because they'd heard from other canadians we did this a dog that had had a uh, tplo and one knee that 
healed horribly. I mean, it was grinding. You get the patella was luxating. It was a overweight Labrador. And of course, then did the other knee and we did stem cell on both knees. And within a month, this dog was walking normal where before it was practically doing a handstand. And even the knee with the prior surgery didn't, wasn't grinding anymore. Wow. So are those dogs using the treadmill then as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, once their incisions are healed, they're in the treadmill until they're non, they're not lame anymore. We include nice. in our price about two months of rehab so that they can't pick and choose. It's like, it's in the price. <laughs> That's not guarantee your success. Yeah, exactly. Your ma- maximum chance of success. Right. So what's your sense when you're teaching acupuncture students? Um, are most of them going back to their practices and using it? Are they following through with the training or? Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to find. I mean, there's a certain amount that don't follow through. And a lot of it is um, from talking while they're taking the courses, they have employers that are not quite supportive. So they don't follow through. And I think if they don't follow through fast, they'll kind of lose it and lose their confidence. We've done a lot more of getting hands on mentoring and making them put needles in before they leave the course and way back when. And um, especially now that we don't have the 40-hour internship, we actually make them do a 16-hour workshop for the exams where we bring in a bunch of cases and we mentor, we interject and help them as they, like in a group of five, work up the case, decide how they're going to treat it, and they put the needles in the case. And there's Ah, all these various cases so that they're getting help if they need it, but we're making them do it. And they have to write like 10 case logs now um, way early on. They don't have to be right and successful with their case logs, but just to make them start thinking and putting needles in. Is um, do, Does Ivis keep stats on how many that take the course go follow through and get certified? or We can have that practice? with the certification. Um, getting people to write case reports is a problem, as I know with my own associate. Life gets in the way. Um, people write a case report 10 years later and finally get certified, but they're still doing yeah. acupuncture. Um, some of these people, they have been doing it all since something makes them go for the certification. Uh, sometimes it's because all of a sudden they're going to go work for Banfield, which I understand requires them to be certified to do acupuncture. So that will sometimes be the final motivation to get their act together and write that report. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Sure. Life so what sort of advice do you give? <laughs> yeah. What sort of advice do you give young acupuncturists on how to succeed then? Do the report fast. <laughs> Don't put it off because it's gonna be a lot harder to write the whole traditional Chinese medicine. I do encourage them within a year or so to go back and start doing the herbals because if you want to learn the traditional Chinese medicine, that will help you learn it better. Um, put needles in. Um, don't carry. I do a two-hour lecture on going beyond preconceptions because I've, in my 20-plus years, been surprised. I think it's about 25 years almost. Um, been surprised by cases. I mean, sometimes your worst case is the one that's going to re- respond the quickest. And Sometimes the mildest case is the one you're not successful with. Um, I've done a behavior case that was going on for a year and a half, getting worse and worse. I put needles in this dog. It was a whippet. I gave her herbs. She went home. She sent me an email. I knew her from the dog club a 
week later and said that night that dog went from a 10 plus to about a five. That weekend, she took a road trip with the dog, which before the dog would destroy itself in a crate or rip into her, she was trying to hold the dog in the car. They went for a road trip. The dog was perfectly normal. She'd let the dog out in the yard. He acted normally, didn't dig and run around frantically uh, like he used to. She never gave the herbs. She never needed another acupuncture session. She moved away, came back uh, last April after being gone for two years. And I was like, how's Aaron doing? And she goes, oh, he's still normal. And that was one session of acupuncture. Um, I reset that dog. Now, most behavior cases don't do that. It takes a lot more, especially if the owners have issues, as we all know. Um, This actually had an owner that didn't have issues. So um, it was just the dog. But, uh, you know, just try it. It doesn't hurt to try. And, And I tell clients that you know, try it. It's just time and some money, but it's not, it doesn't hurt to try it. And you can be surprised what it does. Yeah. I would imagine with that kind of lifespan, as far as your acupuncture practice, that you've probably gone from starting off seeing a lot of train wrecks and last chance cases to people are probably a lot more proactive now that they've, you've had a, this length of time practicing, you know, the reputation of what acupuncture can do. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes the train wrecks, you can really bring them back for the brink or make it another quality life for two years. I've had the skinny, skin and bones dog with renal failure go for two years and die of something else, not even the renal failure. Um, and other ones, yeah, it's like, it just goes south fast and you just can't stop the uh, cliff from happening. It already was happening. You know, you're not successful 100% of the time, but, you know, either you with antibiotics with a culture and sensitivity. You bet. So anything I should have asked you that we didn't, or should, we should have talked about that we didn't? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Um, where do you, where do you see that? Do you see any changes in the, in the future of acupuncture? Uh, I would love, as you know, that we eventually get it as recognized as a board specialty. <laughs> um, that will probably come down the line, hopefully in our time. But uh, that would be nice because a board specialization will, first of all, give us some more legitimacy. We don't really need a legitimacy, but it'll bring about the research that people are asking for because you can't have the research unless it's a board specialty because then you have the residency and then it's in the universities. And um, if they want research, they're going to have to have it as specialty and it's accepted practice in human medicine. I mean, the insurance companies pay for it. Uh, They're not going to do that if they didn't think there was evidence. I agree. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. All right. Uh, Thanks very much for your time. Thank you for talking to me. All right. We'll talk later. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.